You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Tonight, more than any night, I hold in my heart nothing but love for this country and for all its citizens. Whether they supported me or Senator Obama, whether they supported me or Senator Obama, I wish Godspeed to the man who was my former opponent and will be my president. The late Senator John McCain extending notably greater courtesy to the 44th president than the 45th has to him. My guests John Everard and Michael Goldfarb will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the UN report suggesting that several of Myanmar's generals are overdue a trip to The Hague, Germany's contemplation of conscription not only for young Germans but for immigrants and refugees, and the tribulations of keeping an inexplicably overrated tourist attraction up to date with Australia. As Prime Ministers. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea and elsewhere, and Michael Goldfarb, the author and broadcaster. Welcome both. It is not necessary to possess a long memory to recall a time when the death of a long-serving American senator, presidential candidate, and former fighter pilot and prisoner of war would have been a moment of bipartisan solemnity, as political allies and foes alike mourned the passing of a remarkable citizen. We are where we are, however, and the death at the weekend of Senator John McCain, aged 81, has become yet another signifier of the decline of the discourse, notable for presidential pettiness, extraordinary even by the rarefied standards of same already established by Donald Trump. Um, to which we, we will get, uh, but to McCain first, uh, John, he, he has been the subject of a lot of uh, uh, admiring reminiscence these last 48 hours or so, but do the people who admire McCain, do we think, admire the man or the politician? I think they probably are a, a bit of both. I mean, as a man, he was quite extraordinary, uh, surviving five and a bit years of internment in, in Vietnam, uh, tortured horribly, uh, and came out uh, not just uh, alive, but with his spirit basically unbroken. Uh, survived, you know, the, his aircraft being hit by a rogue missile on his own aircraft carrier. No, he, he's been through the mill. And as a politician, uh, he was quite extraordinary. Uh, somebody who's quite prepared to stand up for values regardless of the party line. Line, uh, kicked against the traces time and time again, and yet constantly was re-elected. I think America's lost a quite extraordinary person. Uh, Michael, the, the backstory is well known and is extraordinary. There is no gain saying it at all. Uh, he, he survived an uh, absolutely unimaginable ordeal as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Uh, he was a much... I think I think journalists liked him. He was one of those politicians that that got good press because he knew how it worked and he understood that uh, journalists. Are, uh, I mean, first of all, we do as a breed like a good quote, and we're also quite easily flattered by the the pleasant attentions of of, of the powerful. Um, but was there much in his actual voting record to admire? Or once you take all the other stuff aside, and that's not to belittle the other stuff, uh, was he just basically a fairly stock Republican? He, he was the man who took up 
Barry Goldwater's Senate seat in Arizona, and he was a right. He was a conservative, and in the old days, we would have said right wing, and and it would have meant one thing, but now right wing means something else entirely. And you you better give somebody a, an injection of Thorazine when you say right wing about people now. Um, no, he was he was very much a conservative. The difference was that he understood that in the Senate, where he was based. You know, you're not going to get 100% of what you want legislatively. And so he worked on a couple of key issues with people. Um, he got caught very early in his career with his hand in the cookie jar because he took money um, from a notorious uh, donor and it was illegal. And, you know, he, he said, well, look, this is the kind of money you need to run for office. So then he worked very closely with Russ Feingold, who was a Democrat and one of the most liberal members of the Senate, to try and get some kind of campaign finance reform, which they did. And then it was gutted by successive uh, federal judges whose appointments to the bench he had voted for. He tended to vote the Republican Party line, but he sounded at the edges. And the thing is that, you know, we were listening to that clip, which I think comes from the That's two, concession speech, in yes. 2008. You know, this was this was the thing is he he was no matter there was two ways of looking. Oh, he's just a, a Republican right winger and he's a warmonger because he wanted to bomb Iraq and he wanted to bomb Syria. And he just wanted to bomb. But he never wanted to bomb, say, like Dick Cheney wanted to bomb. And he went against Dick Cheney, who was quite happy to torture his way across the Middle East. And he he managed to to fight against the idea that the U.S. should torture. He was much more complicated than that, and he was eloquent. He could rise above when the battle was done, the legislative battle. He could find words that, you know, which is what leadership should be in a bipartisan country. You know, you should find, we won, but we're gracious. We lost, but we're gracious. Donald Trump what is grace to Donald Trump? Well, we, we a will... girl he dated when he was 16. <laughs> uh, we will come to that shortly. Uh, John, he, McCain did, of course, uh, win the Republican nomination in 2008 at his second attempt. Uh, how big a mark against him is his judgment in not necessarily selecting Sarah Palin to be his running mate, but allowing her to be forced upon him? Because by 2008, he was not getting any younger. Uh, he was a man in frail health, and that would have put, uh, had he won in 2008, a certifiable nitwit, uh, a heartbeat away from the presidency. Well, yes, uh, I think McCain was right in his own admission uh, later that he should have gone for Lieberman. Uh, but whether he was actually able to make that decision at the time, you know, it's, it's one of those great unknowns of history. He was under immense pressure from his own party. And as you say, Sarah Penning was pretty much forced upon him. Uh, but yes, it, it, it was a moment of weakness at best, possibly an area of adjustment. Um, Michael, we, we should look at the official response in Washington, all of which has been as might be expected, except, of course, uh, for the response from the White House. Uh, Eve, I mean, the phrase even by Trump standards is becoming a, a bigger and bigger disclaimer the longer he is in the White House. But even by his standards, this has been an extraordinary gesture of pettiness, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. One is around Washington, D.C., as you would expect when, when a major political figure dies, all the f flags are at half-staff except on the top of the White House. It was at half-staff briefly yesterday, and there's a picture circulating on the web now that shows all the flags surrounding the Washington Monument, which you can see from the back porch of the White House, 
at half staff. And of and and somebody got a, a good angle, probably from the Hay Adams Hotel, um, and managed to get a picture of the White House flying the flag. But there's even worse. Um, yesterday, the news came out. Everybody knew he was going to die because he, you know, he announced, "I'm not taking any more medication, no more extraordinary measures." And people knew he'd be gone within a week. It's a terrible form of brain cancer he had. And so the White House Communications Office drafts. You know, the words, the words that any normal person would say. John McCain was an American hero. His service to this country will be remembered for a long time. He overcame all the things Mm -hmm. in your introduction. Donald Trump took that and put it on the spike and said, we're not putting that out. And he put out a tweet with his photograph, Donald Trump's photograph, saying, Melania and I send our, you know, our, our condolences to Mrs. McCain. That's it. No mention of John McCain is here or whatever. But let's understand that, you know, at this moment, John McCain, nothing became his life like the leaving of it. He has apparently left detailed instructions for his memorial service, which I think is going to be at the National Cathedral. Barack Obama has been invited to give a eulogy. George Bush has been invited to give a eulogy. The two men who pipped him from getting to the White House and Donald Trump has not been invited. And I think that, (laughs) you know. Uh, Yeah, as as uh, as a gesture of tossing the grenade over your shoulder as you leave the building, it's um, it it, it does take some beating. Uh, We will move on, uh, however, and look at Myanmar. The UN certainly has been a report by the UN's Human Rights Council is unequivocally damning about the behaviour of Myanmar's military in Rakhine State, going so far as to suggest that six named senior soldiers should stand trial for crimes against humanity, including genocide. The dropping of the G word is a big deal, explicitly framing the Myanmar regime alongside the perpetrators of sectarian massacre in Rwanda, Bosnia and Sudan. The report also criticises Aung San Suu Kyi, Myanmar's de facto head of government and increasingly ironic Nobel Peace Laureate, for insufficient efforts to stop the bloodshed. Um, John, from the, uh, the the diplomatic international community perspective, the the use of the word genocide is no small change, is it? That means things in the context in this this kind of context. That means things. Uh, it's, it has specific meanings in international law and specific consequences. Moreover, uh, the report was largely drafted by uh, my, my my old friend Marzuki Darsman, who used to be the uh, UN rapporteur on human rights in North Korea, and who I know is careful, sometimes almost painfully careful, over the words he uses in his report. Not only would genocide not have been used lightly, he would have thought very long and very hard about all the consequences of saying that. And he would have known, too, uh, that this almost automatically uh, triggers a recommendation of referral to The Hague, which creates its own complications because Myanmar has never signed up to the treaty acknowledging the International Court of Justice so that to get these six people in front of our tribunal, uh, it's a long chance in, in, in any case, you actually need a resolution by the Security Council uh, uh, overturning Myanmar's refusal to sign, uh, which China will almost certainly veto. I think we're about to enter a very frustrating situation. Uh, Michael, what do you think the consequences of this should be? As John was pointing out, the use of the word genocide in official documents means something. Um, The UN Convention on Genocide, in fact, not merely permits uh, intervention by foreign states. It actually, by some readings of the convention, obliges it. So if the UN have crossed this threshold, this is an instruction to the world that something should be done. What should that something look like? Well, first of all... um how do you get 
700,000 people camped in, you know, some pretty squalid conditions on the border with the country from which they fled. They're now in Bangladesh, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. How do you get them to some kind of secure and safe environment? Um, How do you make it possible for them to go back? And the thing is that as the years go by, I mean, I think this is a problem we're going to face with Syria as well, where you've had people living five, six years in Jordan and in southern Turkey, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of refugees. Mm -hmm. What do you do to get them back? And listening to John talk, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, great. But you know that China, in in the same way that Russia, one one of the only reasons they were able to get um, some of the war criminals to the International Criminal Tribunal on Yugoslavia to The Hague was that Russia was in such a weak position for un, until 2005. How do you get these people to justice? And is it a waste of time to even think about it? How do you, I mean, once upon a time, you could say, well, we'll seize their accounts in Switzerland, whatever. And I'm, I'll assume that some of these generals do have accounts, but maybe they're not in Switzerland anymore. Maybe out in East Asia, they go to other safe havens. Do they, John? Are there other places where people store their cash? I mean, you know, London to members. Yeah, yeah. London. <laughs> yeah, London. <laughs> well, then let's, let's just, let's put down our headsets and, and go, you know, to the city and stop it. I don't know. I mean, I really wonder, I mean, if you had to prioritize, John, what would be the first thing you did to deal with, with this message that's come from your old friend? Yes, it's genocide. Um, officially, the UN says so. What would be your first step? Well, you've you got two things here. You're, firstly, you've got, as you rightly say, you've got a humanitarian disaster. It's 700,000 people uh, about to be drenched by the, the, the rains in Bangladesh. They've, they've just started. Um, the, at the same time, you've got a, a legal process. Uh, the first thing you do is to draft that resolution for the UN Security Council and try your best to shame China into going along with it. The Chinese are most unlikely to do so, uh, both because they want to suck up to Myanmar and because, uh, for theological reasons, they don't like uh, resolutions inviting people to appear before the International Criminal Court of Justice in The Hague. You never know who might be next. Um, so you've got an uphill struggle there. Beyond that, moral pressure on Aung San Suu Kyi. But I think it's hard to remember now how enthusiastic we all were when she she took part. She 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 was in that that strange strata of being regarded as a kind of secular saint for many years. Michael, mm. is there now anything at all left of her reputation? Not in the West, certainly. This is, I think the people closest to her must be incredibly befuddled. The one, you know, the ones who, you know, worked so hard to get her released. I mean, she was a, she was a, it's, it's not an exaggeration at all to suggest that she was an equivalent figure to Nelson Mandela, or at least certainly perceived as such. She was. And, and I don't know what can be done, you know, and one has seen articles over the last two years as this situation has unfolded, you know, saying, oh, well, she's still basically a prisoner of, of the generals and has to watch her step. But I haven't seen one of those in months. It seems as if she has been, you know, she's taken on. And, and you know, I suppose we have to look at, at an, you know, it's sort of off the topic, but there is a kind of militant Buddhism that is emanating on, what is it, the Theravada side? I guess it's the Theravada side. And, you know, it is as aggressive, a for, you know, an aggressive and an unhealthy uh, a mixture of religious belief and politics as, you know, 
some of the, some of the more hellacious examples in the Muslim world or in the American South. I, I mean, I don't want anybody to, to be upset about this. Political religion is a real disaster, and among the many that are afflicting our modern world. Yeah. And just a, f- a final thought on this one, John. Uh, for years, uh, Myanmar or Burma was, as it was known, uh, was often compared to North Korea, your your former bailiwick, and it was almost as isolated as such by the international community, regarded as a beyond-a-pale pariah state. Is that a position to which it should now be returned? I think to which it should be returned, I think it's slowly returning itself, isn't it? I mean, it's cutting off bit by bit its relations with the outside world. Uh, if this goes to the United Nations, Aung San Suu Kyi is going to be faced with a horrible choice between either turning on her own supporters, her own generals, or defying the United Nations, which I think would be the, the final nail in her coffin. Not quite as isolated as North Korea was at its darkest depths, but certainly getting there. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with John Everard and Michael Goldfarb. Coming up next, seven years since Germany abolished national service, it might be on its way back. Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are John Everard and Michael Goldfarb. It is seven years since the last young German man was obliged to either spend six months in uniform or come up with some compelling reason why he should be excused from so doing. However, Germany may be poised to become the latest European country to reintroduce national service. Angela Merkel's CDU is floating the prospect of a year in uniform for all young Germans and, should they be so inclined, newly arrived migrants and refugees. These service, which would not necessarily be strictly military, is envisaged as an apparatus of nation-building and social cohesion and so forth. Uh, National service is, of course, one of those things for which men in particular usually acquire enthusiasm shortly after they've become too old to be drafted, a a category into which I think everybody at this table fits. So I'll I'll ask you first, John, as as a broad principle, are you in favour? Of national service? Yeah. No. Uh, simply because... You it, soppy old liberal. I'm a soppy old liberal. I'm also... I, 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 I remember uh, way back in the, 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 the 50s and the early 60s, uh, the big debate about it in this country. Remember that the army couldn't wait to get rid of national service Indeed in so. the UK because things have moved on in the military. Uh, the good old days of the 30s, 40s and 50s where you uh, arms consisted of lots of fairly sort of slightly trained men waving rifles around a long gone. It costs a lot of money now to train soldiers and modern armies simply cannot deal with the numbers of um, raw recruits uh, that national service provides. It makes no military sense at all. Uh, in terms of social cohesion, I know a lot of people look back on national service as a great bonding exercise mm. uh, that we were all soldiers together and we toughed it out together and we all came out feeling much more British stroke, German stroke, <laughs> Australian stroke, whatever it might have been. And I can see the sense of that, but and, and you, you, I think you can make an argument for a kind of civilian version of national service. Everybody has to do 
six months a year, what do you want, um, of voluntary work, work in the community, uh, helping out in care homes, uh, that kind of thing. But militarily, no, makes no sense at all. Uh, I mean, Michael, I can remember speaking about this some while ago in this very studio to, to Martin Bell, the great BBC foreign correspondent who, as a younger man, was a national serviceman. Uh, he said he hated absolutely every minute of it, or words of that effect, but had since regarded it as a good thing to have done, but a terrible thing. I think his formulation was a dreadful thing to do, but a good thing to have done. Mm. Um, do you think there is any argument for it, even taking away the, the military drawbacks of it, which John has outlined, but that idea of uh, giving a you know, an introduction to adulthood being to, I guess, give people some sense of, of communal service and you know, national identity and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, this is the old man question, and it's 50 years ago today. I wasn't in the streets of Chicago, I, I, but I was wishing that this party would last till I started college three weeks later. <laughs> and it did, amazingly, it did. Um, you know, I, th I, I do think, you know, I, I my draft number was 63 in 1968. If I hadn't gone to college, I was going to Vietnam. So it was, there was a certain amount of compulsion the other way, no gap year for this boy. And I, I don't know, in, in retrospect, being part of, of, of the other side and being mm. part of a group movement and being thrown in, in especially in a country as large and as diverse as America with people from all sorts of different classes and racial backgrounds in a common cause, in a common thing, actually was, I think it was rather good. It was unofficial on my side and would have been official if I'd gone into the army. I, I don't know that it's a a bad thing. I just don't know how anything that's compelled by the state ultimately doesn't immediately become a farce and a big drag on the people who have to go through it. But then again, if you have to go through it, and I think that may have been what Martin Bell was referring to. Everybody went in grousing. They hated it. But then in retrospect, they think, well, this was something I hated when I was doing it. I came out the other side, and I seem actually to have derived lessons from it that I didn't know I was going to get. And look, let's face it. In this day and age, our our societies, U.S., U.K., anybody listening to it, to this broadcast will know that people in their teens and early 20s really are quite fragmented. And there doesn't seem to be anything to bring them together. And if some kind of compulsion from the state that from the age of 18 to 19, you have to do this service with a regular call-up for three months every year till you're 21, I don't see that that's necessarily a bad thing in terms of bringing society together. John, what do you think? I mean, I've, I've spoken... I, I, we didn't have conscription in Australia by the time it, it would have been an issue for me, had, had not had since Vietnam, in fact. But when I've spoken to people who have done national service in places where they still have it, they do think that quite often in the way that Michael was just talking about it, they say that they met lots of people they wouldn't otherwise have met. They did force... They did forge friendships and a network that would be useful and valuable in later life. If you take away the military aspect of it, is there something to be said for the idea of a community service variation of national service? Yes, I, I think there is uh, an argument for community service version of service, but what you just described is mass scouting. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody dressed up in their shorts, put their badges 
on and do sort of, and sing songs around campfires. Yeah, all for that too. But it seems like not exactly a military activity. Uh, well, indeed not. Uh, but finally tonight, we will look at my homeland of Australia because for the fifth time this decade, I think that's the right amount. I may have lost count uh, or the will to live. But Australian officialdom finds itself changing all the prime ministerial stationery while wondering if there is really much point. One institution which has given the struggle up is the local franchise of Madame Tussauds, the inexplicably popular waxworker, with a combination of exasperation and opportunism. They have announced that they have abandoned work on their representation of recently ousted Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and will no longer bother trying to enshrine Australian leaders as it takes, this is true apparently, it takes longer to make a wax model of them than they tend to last in office. (laughs) Insert own joke about the waxwork being a more effective leader and so forth. Um, I, I, like I said, I, I am Australian and therefore somewhat jaded by this nonsense. I, I, I'm going to ask uh, you, John, a question I have asked various guests over the last week as the merry-go-round has been revved up again. Um, from an outside perspective, ha- I mean, how bizarre does it look? Uh, it, it looks pretty... It looks worse than bizarre. It looks Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it's getting there, actually. We we are we are sort of nudging the the glory days of nineteen seventies Italy, where you know it was. You, if you spent longer than two weeks in the in, in in Italy at the time, you were in danger of being asked to have a crack at uh, at running the place. Um, Michael, it's uh, it it is very very strange. One of the things people have pointed out, though, is that it it may look hyper accelerated to the outside world because our own political cycle is. Um, quite hyper-accelerated. Parliament is elected to a three-year term. I mean, even if a Prime Minister goes from election to election, stretching it out as far as possible, they only do three years. Is that too short? Um, it probably is too short. I think it is. You know, I mean, even it, it, we've shortened the news cycle, but you actually need more time. You're so busy dealing with the news cycle, you don't have time to actually legislate, which is, I think, a problem. Um, although the particular problem in Australia seems to be that there's this party that just in the most in the most italian opera operatic way just is really full of backstabbers it's, it's an entire two parties in fact that are both full of backstabbers they they are they are equal opportunity knifers at this point well see if australia had had universal um national service from the age of 18 <laughs> to 21 everybody would understand how to get along with everybody else and they wouldn't you know no, it, it is, it is yes. an interesting shift in the Australian culture because for, for decades the, the Australian Labour Party had a quite uh, formidable reputation as a sort of circular firing squad, while the, the Liberal National Coalition, which is our confusingly named Conservative Party uh, was regarded as the party of, uh, well, to, to coin a phrase, strong and stable government. They, <laughs> they, they, they are the party that was, I, I think, in one uninterrupted stretch in office in Australia from 1948 to 1972. Mm-hmm. I may have got that a year out either side, but I, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I did want to broaden the discussion out a bit further beyond the lunacy of Australian politics, just to just talk about something which has uh, always both vexed and perturbed me, which is what is the deal with waxworks anyway? Uh, we, we, I mean, we, we, we are sitting here within uh, almost literally a stone's throw of Madame Tussauds, and to me, one of the most compelling spectacles in London is not Madame Tussauds itself, but the queue outside it. People who have come to one of the world's greatest and most interesting cities for possibly the only time in their life for a, a limited period, and what is the thing they are doing? They are going to Madame Tussauds. Why? 
and waiting hours to do I so. Know. You're right. It's complete lunacy. This is this is tick box tourism. Madame Tussauds is on the official list of things one has to have done in London. Again, like national service, not fun <laughs> to do, but good thing to have done. And they, and people sort of get you see these little trolley things that they have in Madame Tussauds get wheeled around all the waxworks and come out saying, okay, that's that's that done. Now now they can do the hard rock cafe. I I confess that when I first went to Madame Tussauds, I've been once. Um, they had a temporary exhibition of the results of a catastrophic fire in Madame Tussauds in I think the 1920s with kind of half melted waxworks. And ever since then, I want to go back to Madame Tussauds with a box of matches and see what happens. I was gonna, I thought you were about to say ever since then you've woken up screaming at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> with, with 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 dreams recalling the experience. Michael, have have you ever knowingly and using your own time and money? Uh, attended a wax museum? No, not using my own time and money, but knowingly, yes. Early on in, in the days when the National Football League, the American, the American version, was trying to break into the British market, which it has done quite successfully, there may well be a team here by 2022, um, they had a big party at Madame Tussauds. And I had written an article for The Guardian, this is like in 1986 or 87, about American football. And I was invited to the party, and the NFL really entertains lavishly. And I remember having a long conversation with, you know, a couple of sportscasters I'd only ever known. <laughs> you were going to say with one of the waxworks. It, it, well, it, we it, were standing, it, it, we were standing right that by, sort of evening, standing right next to <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and her handbag. And I thought, well, you know, it really rather looks like her. I mean. I wouldn't pay, but I'm sort of glad that I, I've seen it because, you know, the, the truth is that. They are kind of interesting looking. Don't think, don't think, don't judge me. Don't judge me for saying that, Andrew. You raised your hands. What do you, you want to stop? I, well, I, I don't want to stop, but but the, the ir irreversible march of time uh, does uh, wish us to. That does bring us to the end of today's show. John Everard and Michael Goldfarb, thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Shevetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow. 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>